one anyway, because we're continuing in our series looking at, um, we've called it uh, Steps of Faith, Steps Towards Easter, and aspects of what it means uh, to be Christians and to grow in our faith and our experience of God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of experiencing new life. Jesus came to bring life, eternal life, abundant life. But what does that mean? Um, And what does it mean, particularly when, as we've been reflecting this morning, our lives over this last year have perhaps not really felt like abundant life, haven't really felt like a foretaste of heaven, have they? Life seems so fragile, it seems so constrained, uh, and it seems so difficult at times. So what does it mean to experience new life? Well, that's what I'm going to be reflecting on this morning, and we're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians. It would be great if you could turn it up in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Uh, I will put it on the screen in a moment, but if you have it in your hand as well, then you can be flicking backwards and forwards and uh, gives you the context and everything else. But let me share my screen. Uh, So here we are experiencing new life. And uh, here is the passage which I will read to us now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Let me just orientate this passage for a minute in Paul's larger argument. So it's it's difficult, actually, because you you really need to get the context and read, um, I guess, from certainly towards the end of chapter 3 through. But uh, Paul is talking about um, how how God's great purpose for us is to restore his glorious image in us. He talks a lot about glory. He talks about how um, he's echoing Genesis language. Do you remember what the purpose was when God created humanity? He made us to reflect his image. He made us in his image and he made us for his glory. He made us in a sense to be temples of his glory. But that glory has been marred in us by our sin and our rebellion. But God has a mission through Jesus Christ to restore us to glory and to prepare us for the time when we will meet him in glory. So Paul has been talking about this, reflecting on this in the context of some of the sufferings he's facing. And then we read these wonderful verses, starting to read at verse seven in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure, this glorious treasure, this hope of glory. We have this thing in jars of clay to show this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, I want to remind you this morning of some Greek words. And you might say, well, I I don't know any Greek words, so how can you remind me? But you do know some words because you know these words that I've put on the screen. Biology, psychology, zoology. Uh, and many other kinds of ologies, uh, words that have ology on the end come from the Greek word logos, 
which means word, but also is the word from which we get logic. It means reason. It means discussion. And um, when we talk about theology, we're talking about we're talking about it's the study of God. It's thinking about God. And these three words um, are words that include different Greek words for life. So so biology comes from the Greek word bios, which means in the most general sense, life. And it's a word in the Bible that is often used to mean the whole of life, the whole of the, all the different kinds of, of, of animals and plants and so on. But also in the human context, it means life at its most basic level, the, the, the bare necessities of life, as it were, what we need just to live day by day. So that's one word that we find in the New Testament, bios. We also find the word sukos from which we get our word psychology. Now, uh, when we talk about psychology and psyche and so on, we tend to mean the mind. But actually, in, in Greek thinking, um, soukos was, was me as an individual. It was me as a person. Sometimes in the Bible, it's translated English as soul uh, or even spirit. But it, in, in, um, in biblical thinking, our, our minds and our bodies and, our, and who we are are not to be divided from each other. And so um, soukos means... Uh, me as a person, me as a whole person. And then uh, the third one is zoology, which uh, uses the Greek word zoe. Some of you might be called Zoe or know somebody called Zoe, and it means life. And this is the most common word in the New Testament for life. We find it more than the other two put together. And unlike the English word zoology, which you might think, well, that means all kinds of animals and things like that. Actually, in the New Testament, this word is specific, or usually used specifically for the kind of life that Jesus came to bring us. It is the life of the age to come, which has been brought into the present by Jesus. It's heavenly life. It's abundant life. It's eternal life. And we find it especially in John's gospel. Um, why did Jesus come? I've come that you might have life have it more abundantly. I am the way, the truth and the life. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. And when these kinds of words of life are being used, it's always this Zoe word, this word that points us forward to the quality of life that Jesus came to bring us. Now, that's a bit of an introduction. Let me go back to the passage and let's start with that first verse, verse seven, quite a famous verse. But what does it mean? We have this treasure, this glorious image of God that he is remaking within us and is restoring within us and which is supposed to take us back in our thinking to Genesis chapter three. We have this treasure in, and Paul says, jars of clay. Now, it's, uh, I didn't plan it this morning that Carol was going to show us herself making pots on a pottery wheel. But Paul is not thinking about a beautiful pot that a friend has made for us or a piece of beautiful, you know, Wedgwood porcelain or something like that. Because in the ancient world, it, uh, earthenware pots were the most basic disposable things. I mean, they didn't have it didn't have. Um, cardboard and plastic and things like that all the stuff that you throw out in your recycling bin um, as just the byproduct of life something disposable well the best word Paul could come up with in his day was a was a was a clay jar probably often these were were unfired uh, very simple jars that were used to hold oil and things like that and when they cracked 
And when they broke, you just you just chuck them out. And if you go on archaeological digs in the Middle East, you find tons of this stuff um, buried in, you know, in outside people's houses and in cities and so on. It was disposable. It was not prized. It was not something that was very glorious. And Paul says we've got this treasure in in plastic bags, in, in milk cartons. Um, and why and why has God put this treasure, this this life of the age to come in these things? Well, it's to show that the all surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. Uh, Fee in her prayers just now, I didn't know either she was going to do this, but she quoted from the end of 2 Corinthians chapter four. I think he probably in the message or uh, another uh, more contemporary version. But uh, Paul says in my version, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We've got this, these temporary bodies, these jars of clay, which are here to demonstrate the contrast with the life that God has put in them, which is eternal and which is glorious. And the lesson, therefore, to us about what, what, uh, what this life is like is that it is not a life that, we, that is to be judged by appearances. It is not a life that um, can necessarily be seen just by looking at us and certainly by looking at our bodies. It is a life that comes from God by his spirit living in us and it is to demonstrate his glory. Of course, it is to affect how we come across to others, how we live, but is ultimately to, to, to demonstrate the contrast between our bodies which are wasting away and the glorious life that he has placed inside us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Let's move on. Verses eight and nine. Paul now gives us four contrasts. He's talking particularly about himself and his fellow apostles, but he's clearly expecting that we can identify with these four contrasts ourselves. Do you see them? We're both we're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. That's contrast number one. We're, we're being squeezed. Have you thought about, I don't know, if you, if you do carpentry, if you've got a vice or a, or a clamp or something, and you squeeze, you can squeeze something tighter and tighter. And Paul says it's as if we're being squeezed and squeezed. We're hard pressed. We're pushed into a narrow place, but we don't crack. We're not crushed. We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Yes, of course, we're perplexed. Why is this happening to us? Why is life so difficult? Why, aren't, why can't I see things more easily? And yet we're not in despair. We don't completely give up on God just because we cannot see everything clearly. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Well, most of us are not persecuted, if we're honest. Uh, but we do have brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted, who cannot meet today, even if we're meeting, who cannot, who don't even dare to have a Bible, um, certainly openly in their homes. They're persecuted, but they're not abandoned. It might look to the outside world as if they're abandoned, as if God's forgotten them, but they're not. And finally, struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down, but not destroyed, even if we're struck down by disease, even if our lives are taken from us in the in the bios sense of the word life, our zoe is not taken from us. We are not destroyed. Do you identify with those comparisons as we look, as we think back on this year of lockdown and as we look to the future? 
Uh, do you feel really squeezed? Do you feel forced into a narrow, constrained space? I'm sure we all do. But you see, the second thing about this Zoe life that Jesus came to bring is it's not based on our circumstances. It's not seen primarily in our circumstances or even in our feelings. We can feel perplexed. We can feel hard pressed. But the reality of the life yeah, is it transcends that. It's not about our circumstances or our feelings. It's about the resilience God gives us to live the kind of life he has placed within us. Now, you might be wondering about these birds that are on the slide. I don't know if you saw this story uh, in the news this week. I found it on the BBC website. And these pictures are of an Australian bird called the Regent Honey Eater. And the Regent Honey Eater has been in the news because it's being, well, it's, you might say it's being persecuted and struck down, but it, because it's becoming more and more rare, it's losing its song. It's forgotten how to sing like a regent honey eater. And it started to sing like the birds around it. And obviously, um, bot uh, biologists and so on and nature lovers are very concerned that this bird, the regent honey eater, is in danger of forgetting how to be a regent honey eater. And I thought, well, that's, I, 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 that's, a, that's an interesting parallel, isn't it, between us and uh, these birds? Uh, you can think of it on a number of levels. I mean, I, I slightly worry that some of us are literally forgetting how to sing. I mean, we're, we sit here watching Zoom and we, we look at the songs and we sit there. Uh, I see you looking a little bit stony faced, uh, some of you. Um, it, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to sing along to Zoom, particularly if we don't feel that we're very good singers. But I hope, I hope at, a, at that literal level, we're not forgetting how to sing. But I hope at a deeper level, we're not forgetting how to be God's children that we're not forgetting how to be Regent Honey Eaters in that sense, that we're not forgetting our song, forgetting what it is that makes us who we are, that we're not letting the world constrain us into its mould. We're so influenced, aren't we, by what we read, by what we see on social media. Let's, let's not forget, let's not lose our distinctiveness. Uh, it reminded me of that, um, the contrast, I suppose, with that amazing poem by Gerald Manley Hopkins. Do you know the one Christ plays in 10,000 places? Uh, it, it's not a particularly easy um, poem to understand. I, I did preach on it once. Some of you might remember. I will read it to you now. If it just washes over you and you don't really do poetry, well, that's fine. But it's a, it's a poem about how we are, how as Christians, the thing that is to be distinctive about us is Christ. Just as the thing that's to be distinctive about a regent honey eater bird is supposed to be its own song. Let me read you this poem. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bowswung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eyes what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, 
lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the father through the features of men's faces. Is Christ playing a tune through you? Is the song of your life the music, the melody of Christ? Are our limbs and our eyes lovely because the life of Christ is in us? Despite the circumstances we face, despite the squeeze that we feel under, despite the persecutions and the perplexity. Let's move on to the uh, final few verses, verses 10 to 12. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus, the zoe of Jesus, may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Ah, these verses, they get to the heart of the gospel, these verses, because life, real life, according to the Christian faith, comes through us dying, dying to ourselves. Um, but they come even more fundamentally through the fact that Christ has died. And we have, we've, in a sense, celebrated that this morning, haven't we, through the bread and the wine. We have reflected on the fact that because Jesus died, we can be alive. And the, the wondrous thing about the gospel is that life, true life, comes through death, comes through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But actually, it's displayed in us when we identify with his death, when we suffer with him, when we share his sufferings, as we sang in that song a few minutes ago. That is the gospel. That is what we demonstrated when we got baptized, when we went down into the water. Symbolically, we were dying with Christ and also being raised up with him again. It's a big contrast to, um, I guess, the, the, the attitudes of our society around us, which talks about, you know, constantly battling with death and death is something we are. They don't talk about at all because it's, it's too abhorrent or something that we've got to avoid at all costs. The Bible encourages us to see death as a way to life at all sorts of levels fundamentally at the level that Jesus died for us, but also at the level where he invites us to come and die with him. He doesn't just invite us, he commands us to come and die with him. And we're always doing this. All of us should always be dying to ourselves so that the life, the true life of Jesus can bubble up within us. You see, the, gospel, the Christian gospel is, gospel is not about triumphalism. It's not about us winning all the time. It's about the fact that Jesus has won through his death. Um, it's not around in this life us always being uh, winning all the arguments, having healthy bodies, um, being wealthy and happy. Uh, these things are, are pictures of the coming age. And in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see them therefore breaking in and we expect to see them breaking in in our world. But they're not things that we go after. We're not things that we that we grasp for ourselves because we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all surpassing power is from God and not from us. I'm sure many of you were, were saddened and upset uh, a few weeks ago uh, to hear about the fall of 
uh, of Ravi Zacharias, a well-known Christian speaker, uh, evangelist, and so on. He, he died last year, and then after his death, all kinds of horrific revelations came out about the way that he had abused his position and how he had, had abused women in particular. Uh, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for Christian leaders to come unstuck in sexual matters, in misbehaving sexually. Uh, but rather, and, and some of you will be aware there have been cases even in our own town of Christian leaders uh, having to step down because of that. But uh, Zacharias was a particularly uh, grim case. And it's a reminder, I think, when you when you read about the circumstances, all, there's all kinds of lessons that we can learn from that. But I think one of the lessons is about the kind of leadership that we're looking for as Christians. You see, if you read 2 Corinthians, I do think 2 Corinthians is one of the most uh, lovely books in the New Testament, uh, certainly one of the most lovely of Paul's letters, because in it he reflects on his weaknesses. He reflects on the difficulties of being a Christian. He reflects on, on how he was not, as some claim to be, a super apostle. He was not trying to put himself on a pedestal and claim that everything, uh, that, you know, do things, minister through power. He was ministering through weakness. And so Paul gets a bad press sometimes. People try to suggest that he was, you know, um, quite a difficult person. And I think perhaps some, sometimes he was a bit uh, difficult and certainly opinionated. But he was not someone who ministered out of power. He was someone who stressed the importance of weakness and how Christ's glory was displayed in our weaknesses. And we have to remember that. And I'd encourage you to pray for all Christian leaders, particularly those who operate at, at a national level, who I think are under particular attack. But pray for me and pray for all in Christian leadership that uh, we will not fall prey to certainly sexual sins, but also the sin of trying to minister out of places of power and coercion um, rather than places of weakness and vulnerability. But let's uh, just to conclude, really, I just want to remind us what I hope we've learned this morning. Perhaps we've learned some surprising things about the life of the age to come, this Zoe life which Jesus came to bring us and which Paul talks about so movingly in 2 Corinthians. And firstly, do you remember we, we learned that this kind of life is not about appearances. It's about God's presence within us. It's about the treasure within these um, clay jars that are so easily broken and thrown away. It's not about our circumstances or our feelings and how comforting that is when our circumstances and our feelings uh, just seem so fractured and messed up. This life is not about that. It's about God's glory dis being displayed despite them and through them. And it's not experienced by clinging on to life and the things that we think are important to life. It's, it's experienced through Christ dying for us and through us dying to ourselves for his sake. And so the question I leave you with this morning is, well, how are we searching for? How are we prioritizing? How are we feeding? How are we celebrating? How are we longing for and recognizing this kind of life? And how are we saying no to false visions of life that tell us it's all about how we look or how we feel or how good things are going for us? How can we make sure that in our lives and in the life of our church family, it's this kind of life? It's the glory in clay jars kind of life that we're celebrating.
and glorifying. Let's be quiet for a moment as we respond to God in our own hearts. And then in a moment, we'll sing our song. Dear God, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have brought life into our world and into our beings. We thank you that when we believe in you, we experience eternal, abundant life, the life of the age to come brought into the present. We pray that you will help us despite the circumstances we face, despite our weaknesses and vulnerability. To, to glorify you, actually not in spite of those weaknesses and vulnerabilities, but because of them, to show forth something of what it means to be disciples of you in a, in a fractured and confused world. Help us, we pray, in these times when we do be, feel squeezed. Help us not to be crushed. Strengthen us and protect us, we pray, and help us always to keep looking for, searching for, prioritising and celebrating this life which you came to bring us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.